Hola, and welcome to the Beauteous Me podcast, a relatable and authentic space for all. Tune in as we share stories of triumph, resiliency, and healing. We do this all while finding its inner beauty. My name is Jamili Whitfield, and the journey begins now. Hi, guys. Welcome back for another episode of the Beauteous Me podcast. I'm so super excited to have Kara Crossway Brindle as our guest today. And we're going to get into a really uh, deep topic for so many people. Um, So many families have suffered with this, not only this year, but um, past years. I know I have friends who have lost a family member to suicidality. So it's amazing to have a mental health professional with the experience and working with people on suicide prevention and a whole host of other things. So let me formally introduce Kara. Kara Crossway Brindle is passionate about giving aha moments that create goosebumps and catalyze powerful action. Kara is honored to serve young adult professionals in her work as a mental health therapist with an emphasis on healing trauma and supporting growth. She values working with perfectionists, entrepreneurs, and enjoys inspiring innovation in suicide prevention to save lives. Carol, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm glad we're having this conversation today. I know. I know. I mean, it's. I think it's important, especially since we've been in this pandemic and people have been feeling frustrated, stressed out, not knowing what's going to happen, the economy, um, politics, racism, you name it. A lot of emotions are all over the place. Exactly. Agreed. Yeah. It's not boring. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me a little bit about yourself and the work that you do, Kara. Oh gosh. Well, I'm celebrating my 10th year as a therapist this year. So that's been exciting to just kind of see how things have changed. Um, you know, so much of the bio, just love working with these young adult professionals and have found myself embracing the work of suicide prevention, specifically for those professionals who are like, hey, I don't know how to start this conversation, which to me is scary. Like if you have this calling, we want you to feel prepared to go there. So this is where my passion lies. And I'm just so happy we're talking about it. Yeah, it is very scary because um, there's a vulnerability to admitting that you don't want to be here, right? Because there's so many people who post live life. Life is a gift. God gave you this life. God gave you this body and be positive and it'll be okay. And I've overcome this without knowing that everyone is different and has a different genetic makeup. And, you know, I know I've talked about in my previous podcast about, um, uh, generational traumas and mm-hmm. intergenerational traumas, et cetera, and how that kind of gets passed on into your genome. So, you know, when people are vulnerable to talk about it, they look back and they're like, well, I had an uncle, I had a cousin, I had this. Exactly. And then you start thinking like, you know, <laughs> this is a lot. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's so much to talk about. <laughs> right. So tell us a little bit about the motivation behind this mission in suicide prevention. Well, I think it was kind of interesting. I had to understand that this was personal before it became professional. Mm -hmm. And so like, as Mm -hmm. you alluded to, so many of us have had someone who's suffered from suicidal thoughts or has died by suicide. And so for me, it was having two family members die by suicide before I was 18. Wow. So, you know, understandably that changes as you talk about like the family system or the legacy of trauma. I didn't really have that awareness until I was an adult of like, oh, this really shaped who I was. Didn't really, you know, I didn't really have that connection, which is ironic as a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so to, to embrace this, it really just came from both a personal and practical place of like, I had people under my supervision as a therapist who were like, hey, I'm in the community. I have this person who's struggling with suicidal thought. 
I don't know what to ask. I had one hour of training in grad school. What do I do? Like just paralyzed by this fear of even going there. And my type A-ness was like, all right, we got to find a solution. Like practicality, what can I give you? And so I just started doing trainings and saying, how do we actually start the conversation in a way that feels comfortable, in a way that feels empowering? Because 10.3 million people have had suicidal thoughts. This is not a new thing. And so we need to be able to go there. That's really where my passion lies. Absolutely. So let's talk statistics. The, The World Health Organization, and I'm quoting this, guys, and you can look at this up. It says... According to the World Health Organization, who close to 800,000 people die due to suicide every year, which is one person every 40 seconds. Suicide is a global phenomenon and occurs throughout the lifespan. Effective and evidence-based interventions can be implemented at population, subpopulation, and individual levels to prevent suicide and suicide attempts. There are indications that for each adult who died by suicide, there may have been more than 20 others attempting suicide. That statistic right there is so deep. And, and you think about, I think what stood out for me was the thought behind how many times somebody thinks about hurting themselves and ending their lives. Because you think about it, then you have, you're scared. You think about it, then you're scared. And we think about if we don't have coping skills, we don't have supports and even people who have supports that are still like really suffering inside, Mm -hmm. um, that thought comes up. It really does. Um, and I, and I'll share and I'll, you know, I'm very vulnerable in my podcast and I'm, I share openly about my experiences, my family experiences, et cetera. Um, years ago, I, I felt at that point and I would think, you know, if I hurt myself, you know, then this, this, you know, this can end, but the fear was just like, no, I, I, I can't do this. I have a child. I have this. Um, and it was because I didn't have the appropriate coping skills. I felt at my lowest of my lowest at that point in life. But um, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm blessed that I have, I had a good um, circle of friends who were okay. there and my family and everything. Um, but not a lot of people are fortunate about that. And, and that's why I want you to kind of step in and, and talk about the work that you do, because not not everyone has that um, ability to do that. And you think it, I'm, I was a master's professional and I have my MSW. I'm a professional. I was a, a a director at that time, it was a new position, and it, but I had life circumstances that were going on that I, I just felt at my lowest. And, and it, 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 I, I want people to understand it doesn't matter from what background you come from, whatever socioeconomic background, this is true. This is real. This is what people feel. Exactly. Well, I think, you know, it's a human experience. I think that's what you're mm-hmm. doing. It's like, it doesn't matter. I say that suicide doesn't discriminate. I mean, it really no. is just more about how all these factors come together. Um, something that I like to emphasize is it's not like we're looking for one particular thing that sets this in motion, because if that were true, this conversation would be over in five minutes. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. We'd have it figured out. And so, you know, I feel like for a lot of people, they're just, they want answers. They want to know why is this happening to them? Why is this happening to their loved one? Um, you know, there's one powerful statistic that I wanted to share with you that I feel like has really crafted what I do. And that number is 135. Have you heard that number before? No, no. Do tell, do tell. I know, like on your seat, on the edge of your seat. I know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So 135 is the minimum number of people impacted by each suicide. Wow. Minimum number. So when you think about this human experience of people saying, my family would be better off without me, or I'm a burden on my family. When we think of our veterans, we think of our parents, we think of people who have retired, whoever we're talking about. 
this number pops in my head all the time because in their pain, which is what suicides really are about more than death, they've convinced themselves these people wouldn't even, you know, wouldn't impact them in a negative way. And yet we know 135 people are going to be impacted. They're going to have some sort of reaction to this person not being on this earth any longer. And so, you know, for these teenagers I've been working with who are like, oh, they'd be so much better without me. I, I have this urge to like, share that. And it's like, no, 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 that's not going to be helpful. Cause to them it's about escape. I want to get past this. I want this to end. I want this to stop. And I don't so, want to feel the pain. I don't want to feel exactly. the pain. It's pain-based behavior. It's true pain-based behavior. You don't, you feel like the pain is so unbearable that just eliminating it is just like, you know, you, you, you don't want to feel a headache. You want to take the the pill so that it can right. go away. People feel that this is like the solution to that excruciating pain when Yes. And so, you know, like, I think that's something I want people to think about. I also want them to think about because it's about pain that people get to this place over time. I think there's this big fear in the community that, you know, I'm going to have a thought, I'm going to have a plan, I'm going to have an action within five minutes. And there are people where that could happen, but they are considered the exception to the rule. And so when we're talking about maybe your experience or my family's experience or any of us who've had a suicidal thought, it might have lingered, you know, or or festered, for lack of a better word, for weeks, months, years. So we have time. Or or stemming from childhood. You know, I know when I experienced my childhood traumas that I've, you know, shared on my podcast, I know those are things that have crossed my mind. Not, not that, listen, I was like that, that scared person, like, I feel like this, but I'm a little too scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's where, that's where at that point, you know, it's not till you do the healing, which I'm, you know, I'm so grateful that I'm doing it, which is why I share this platform so that people can know that we're human. And we're, like you said, we're having human experiences that, you know, you don't, your past, don't let your past define, you know, where exactly. you can move on to your future. Yes. So I think that, you know, just normalizing some of this of like, hey, people have thoughts, people feel inescapable pain, like this is all part of the human condition. I almost hope that that gives people permission to have this conversation of like, oh, it's more normal than I realized. This isn't, it doesn't have to be as stigmatized as it seems right now. That's part mm-hmm. of our mission. Absolutely. Did you see um, TikTok had something they were posting that young adults that if they post like some key words, I, and I can't remember what the words are, that it was like a sign for someone to, at, one of it had to do with spaghetti or pasta, something like, oh, she's making my favorite pasta again. Um, and it was like an alert and TikTok. Yeah, really interesting. Um, it was like an alert for other members of TikTok in the platform to kind of check in on that person, make sure that they're okay, et cetera. Um, really, you know, so people are finding different ways to kind of put it out there that I'm, I'm feeling this pain. Let me see if I can get some kind of um, support. Right. And I think it's just evolving so much too. So even as you share that, I'm like, okay, that's a new one. <laughs> like, Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> I feel like people, they are in their own discomfort, let's say, circling around the issue, right? So they're coming at it from, are you thinking of hurting yourself or what's going on? And that feels softer. And so I understand why the community might want to embrace that first. But what's interesting is these youngest two generations, the millennial and Gen Z generations are telling us, go straight at it. Ask me outright, are you suicidal? Are you thinking of killing yourself? Because they want to know that we're comfortable enough to have that conversation. So if we circle around it, we're actually modeling like, ooh, maybe I don't want to hear this. Maybe it's too uncomfortable to hold. Right. And, and you know, for us as mental health practitioners, we're the direct ones asking, do you feel like you want to hurt yourself? Do you have exactly. a plan? Is there an intent? <laughs> How yeah. often have you had these thoughts? You know, we, we're, we're direct with it. But, you know, a family member seeing someone depressed is probably scared, you know, and and 
it's it is scary for someone else who doesn't understand which i want to get into um talking about mental health and its impact in people having suicidal thoughts or ideations or intents right like that connection and before mm-hmm. we go there i think to name that myth that i think you started to allude to which is mm-hmm. so many of people think oh if i ask about this i'm giving you the idea so i just yeah. want to say outright that's a complete myth in fact yeah. if someone is experiencing this that is more of a relief to say oh you've asked me i can now talk about it and for those that are like nope this is not my experience they'll be very quick to correct us and be like nope nope i'm not thinking about suicide let's move on <laughs> like, right. it doesn't have to be scary Thank you for putting that out there. You're absolutely right. You see, I even danced around it <laughs> and I'm a mental health professional because it's true, you know? Um, but yeah, thank you for, for uh, clarifying that. Absolutely. So yeah, mental health, like where's that connection? Well, I think for a lot of people, this is all about the fact that any mental health diagnosis increases risk. That's mm. kind of the short and dirty of it, which alarms people like, oh my gosh, I have anxiety. But we're talking about clinical diagnoses, right? So like someone saying this is so disruptive or dysfunctional that this is now part of your experience. And so there are kind of top five mental health diagnoses that are connected to suicide. And I bet you, you probably have a sense of what some of those are because the media is latched onto these and go, oh, cause and effect, even though it's not that simple. Depression is number one. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Ding, ding, ding. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. And when you think about it, like, let's talk about depression. It makes sense in some regard. It's the, I feel hopeless. I feel like I have no energy. I don't want to be here. Um, For people who have chronic depression, I don't want to go through this 10 times over, you know, every year, every 10 years. I don't want to go into this deep, dark hole every single time. And so that pain conversation comes back of like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. So suicide becomes an option. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not suicide. uh, Depression hurts. Depression physically hurts. It hurts exactly. your every fiber and well-being. So yeah, that's why depression is number one. What's number two, Kara? Number two is post-traumatic stress. So we think of Absolutely. trauma. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Again, very disruptive, very much a pain experience. Number three is substance use. Also yes. probably makes sense <laughs> to yep. folks that are listening. Yep. Any substance use disorder, because again, this is the stigma with families and not, um, understanding or shunning the person or not having any supports with um, trying to maintain sobriety, et cetera. And substance abuse and mental health kind of go hand in hand. Not kind of, they do. That's that whole word, co-occurring, right? They come together. (laughs) Co-occurring disorders, guys. (laughs) Yes. And then four and five are bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder. So because bipolar, you know, it's two extremes. You go through the extreme of mania, um, super uh, energetic and um, living life and then super depressed. So you go through the highest high and then the lowest low. So, of course, bipolar is going to be there. Um, But borderline personality disorder, I'm actually a little shocked about it, but not shocked. And I think that's twofold because I think people with borderline um, personality disorder also have this, I mean, from what I've seen in practice is, um, a little bit, I want to say some, some inkling, like a little sprinkle dash of narcissism, um, with borderline because they have two different extremes Mm -hmm. when it comes to also it's, it's, it's crazy because bipolar is separate, but borderline is like, I like you all the way or I hate you all the way. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like that famous book that's called, um, I love you 
or no, I hate you. Don't leave me. <laughs> yeah. And it's the hardest population to treat. If you look at so many evidence-based models, those evidence-based models do not cover um, people who are borderline personality disorder, like a lot, a TFCBT, I think CBT as well. Um, you know, there's other evidence-based models that really are hard to treat this population. Right. And I think what we're seeing, if we think about what's the overlap between these five Mm -hmm. is that there's that dysfunction disruption component. There's this, um, this element of like being unhappy and not feeling connected to our worlds, right? Whether that's depression or borderline who have struggles mm-hmm. with their relationships. And yeah. so what I'm noticing, and maybe you've noticed this too, is that we're moving away from borderline, which has this really highly stigmatized, horrible reputation. It does. Now, it really, really does. And, and, and we, we can share that as mental health clinicians. When you see a patient or someone come in with borderline personality, you're like, oh, my work is cut out for me today. <laughs> Like, oh, this is going to be tricky. Um, And now we're moving it into complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's almost like this relational diagnosis of PTSD. It's not just our veterans and war and abuse. It's now long-lasting childhood attachment trauma that's coming out into play. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So when you see your your clients... um, who have these co-occurring disorders, um, who have um, significant mental illness and are at the lowest of their lowest and they feel um, suicidal. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing with them? Absolutely. I think we've moved away from this cold clinical checklist that come up, especially for therapists of like, do you have a plan? Do you have intent? Do you have means? Check, check, check. That's important (laughs) by all means, but I think there's a shift towards suicide story. Mm -hmm. What that looks like is saying, tell me how you got here. Help me understand that pain. Embrace it. Like we're literally leaning in and saying, tell me more. And that gives them permission to tell us why this even manifested in the first place. Because most people, well, not most, we could say some people will never get to a place where suicide is an option, but then there are plenty of people who will, at least in thought. So, so when Go ahead. No, I was going to say, so when you, when you ask of your patients and you lean in, what, what shift do you see in their um, demeanor? You know, I tend to see fear and relief. It's mixed. I think for them to even acknowledge it is liberating, but scary. It's almost like opening the floodgates of what are we going to do with this? I've acknowledged that I'm suicidal. What do you, what am I, a therapist going to do with that information? There's a lot of fear that we're just going to put someone in a hospital And so people don't want to have this conversation because they think we're going to overreact and go, oh my gosh, I can't handle this. Go to the hospital right now. And it's not that. Yeah. But the truth is, and I'll interject, is that even newer mental health professionals automatically jump because it's the risk factor for us as mental health providers is that if, if this happens to a patient or a client of yours, it's huge, you know, with licensing and everything. And just, just overall in general, having to, um, talk have this conversation with the families when they're like, but why, but why, but why, you know, it's the fear that, you know, I have this plan, but I don't want to go to the hospital. I don't feel comfortable telling you. So I'm just going to sit here and BS you as I do everyone else. And I think that, that what you said is important and we, we do it, but I don't think we do it as you're naming it. And I think it's important because you're leaning in, you're acknowledging, you're saying, I understand this pain. How did you get here? Tell me more about it. Exactly. And for those that are listening that are helpers, professional helpers of any capacity, like I think it's almost 
I, I paved the way for this. Like when I first meet you as a client, I'm going to tell you, I am comfortable talking about suicide. If that is ever your experience, here's what you can expect from me. And so I'll list off all the things and all the options and Hey, you know, hospital is going to be last resort. Your safety means a lot to me. And just by starting there, when they've barely gotten to know me, I almost feel like it just makes this easier. If you know, for them to look at me one day and say, Kara, I'm not okay. Or I know that you told me you're not going to put me in a hospital, but I still need to tell you that this is concerning. I'm freaking myself out. This scares me because we've got a lot of people who have chronic suicidal thoughts, which means Mm -hmm. this is part of their everyday experience. I had a person come in once at an intake, that first meeting and say, Hey, I've been suicidal for eight years. And I was like, tell me more. (laughs) You have my attention. Um, But to take that person who's been suicidal for eight years and say, you have to go to the hospital immediately, what purpose would that serve? She obviously had functioned to some level to get to my office eight years later. And that's deep that you even said that. You're just making the connection. So how long has it been that you've been feeling this way and making your own professional assessment and saying, okay, we're we're talking about it. And I know they've been feeling this way for eight years, but I know they're going to come back. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Which because is also talking, a risk that we take as well, because you're like, I know they're going to come back, but I pray you come back because I still don't know you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's still definitely a risk. But if someone's willing to talk about this, that's almost its own protective factor. Like if you're willing to sit down and have this conversation with me, that's really, really hard. That is reassuring because that means you want something to change. It's the people who never give us any sign. And again, they're the outlier. They're the they're the exception to the rule. But that's the fear. That's the one person we think of all the time is, oh, they had no warning signs and this just happened out of the blue and I had no idea. That's our fear as people. Yeah. But that is so rare. Like there's got to be something that we can notice. And if they're talking about it, that is a, a really good sign of like, I want this to change. So I'm going to talk to you about it to see if we can make something shift, make something happen. And I think that's important that you say that, that if someone says says something, take it seriously. And, and not that, oh, you know, you know, you don't feel like that. Like, don't say that. That's just because this is happening today. Really, really, really sit and tune in with that person and find out a little bit more about that. Exactly. I agree. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little, uh, you know, just, uh, more about, you know, the technique. So this is your first, your sessions, you're, you're leaning in you're having these conversations, you know, what else in your practice model are you doing in order to um, work on prevention? And Yeah. So I think, you know, once we get to the place of normalizing, like I'm willing to go here first meeting, then we can kind of gauge are all these signs in place? So like, do they have stressors that are happening that would put them closer to suicidal thought? Do they have significant changes? Like we had this big fear. We're in the middle of a pandemic. So the big fear is, oh my gosh, we've never experienced this before. Like, how do we handle it? Um, and so the community at large is saying, are we going to have more suicides? That's the fear. Yeah. And yet, um, maybe this will be reassuring to listeners, but like we are seeing some increase in thought because there's that hopelessness of, is this going to change? How long is this going to take? But we're not seeing as many attempts in this moment, this exact moment. And part of that is because people feel like we're all in this together, even though our experiences are slightly different. Like no one's living life and being like, this is fabulous. Like we're all in the same ocean, even if we're in different boats is the analogy I've seen online. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's so true. So like, I feel like our teenagers, which was on our higher risk groups for a while there are not as stressed because they're not in school right now. I feel like our retired folks are trying to connect with their community. So they don't feel isolated. Like we have these different pockets of people who are actually rallying, which is actually reassuring to me, at least. I think that's interesting that you said that because I, because 
as you mentioned, um, people would think the pandemic would would um, bring people to that point, but mm-hmm. people are more connected now because we had no choice to connect with your family, connect with friends, connect and do something else as opposed to using your escape um, coping skills, whatever you do to kind of escape, people are more um, brought forth together. So thank you for, you know, for mentioning that so that people can understand that um, there is a shift and and hopefully when this whole mayhem is over that we stay connected, right? <laughs> right, right. I think there's going to be some good things that come out of it. And, you know, obviously this could change any time. We could see a, a burst of, you know, more suicides any moment because I'm obviously not a researcher. I'm just tracking right. this from the face-to-face connection. But yeah, there's still isolation. And so for your question way back here at the beginning, which was some people don't have support networks. Some people don't have connections. Those are the folks we are most concerned about when it comes to suicide because their brain is going to say, oh, no one would notice I'm gone anyway. So it's almost even more possible if we don't have anyone that's, quote unquote, keeping us alive. Absolutely. Absolutely. You created a survey that they're using in the schools in Oklahoma. Am I right? Uh, nope, they're all here in Colorado. In Colorado. <laughs> I was like, oh, yep. oh. <laughs> in Colorado. Uh, but I did my research. I saw your survey. And the survey is actually really interesting and it's very different than again your your regular survey on suicidality. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So when I had all these clinicians, these other folks that were coming to me saying, I'm not prepared, and their training was send them to a hospital, as you and I've named, like, ooh an hour of training, which is don't deal with this, not acceptable for me. Um, I created an app, a web-based app where I said, okay, all these school professionals and mental health professionals, engage your students, engage young people, have a conversation and get that suicide story. And so it's not just plan, intent, action. It's where's your pain? What's your stressors? What's going on with your family? Mm. Different things that would make this more heartfelt and actually give us a better context of what's going on. I love it. I love it. And I'm hoping that this app reaches more schools, more adolescents, because it is cool. It's very different um, than from what I've seen. And, and I've been in the field for about 15 years and it's, it's way different. So I, I thank you for, you know, doing that and, and putting that out there in this platform. Oh, thanks. That means a lot to me. And, you know, I know I, we pulled it from a bunch of evidence-based things. We just recognized that this youngest generation likes technology. So if we mm-hmm. can put this on an iPad or a tablet and say, I'm right next to you, let's have this conversation, they're actually more willing to engage because they don't want to look us in the eye and say I'm suicidal, but they'll look at the screen and say, yep, this and this and this, and I'm not okay. It's kind of so, a beautiful thing. <laughs> so tell us about the tools that you're using. So you're using the app and what what other tools are you using? Um, so I created a flip chart, which is for, you know, we have some of our schools and some of our teenagers in summer camp using it right now, which is interesting. It looks like this. So it's got an acronym, which is ALERT. Oh, ask, and listen, engage. Yep. Engage, respond, task. And this is for our teachers and our students to be like, all right, if I am an ambassador, for lack of a better word, I want to know how to ask these questions. What am I looking for? Those warning signs that we see in training. Um, so we're just doing a lot of different trainings in the community. I mean, that's where our nonprofit got funding to say, let's train the teachers, let's train the principals, let's train big brothers, big sisters, yeah. um, whoever wants the training to say, this is where things have shifted in the last 10 years. Yeah, that is that. So can people, anyone download your app? Um, so the app itself, we're asking that you have to be, you know, someone who has got some training in suicide. So most of them are mental health folks or, um, school based folks. 
And then there's a pilot program that you mentioned that are, is happening in nine schools. But whereas the flip charts and the trainings we do, you know, we just have people reach out and tell us, you know, who's the audience? Who are we talking to so we can respect what role they play and not ask them to be pseudotherapists, right? Like we don't want everyone to be like, I have to be a therapist right now. <laughs> but I, feel yeah. yeah, that is awesome. So Kara, what, um, what, other work are you doing? Because I know you're doing other work. I know we talked about it, but the listeners don't know. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, I don't want to overwhelm them. Um, so I just, I love creating new things. So I think that's just going to show up in all these roles. But um, I'm a professor at one of the universities here in Colorado teaching students human growth and development, which is very much trauma related. Yeah. Um, I recently shifted from working directly with clients more towards working with therapists. So whether it's this training in suicide or other continued education opportunities, like we all need to stay on top of the latest things. Mm -hmm. And so um, I specialize in Medicaid. I specialize in burnout. And so these are other things I've created for that community. And then when you and I connected right after that, COVID hit and I wrote a book (laughs) during this pandemic. (laughs) Um, I mean... We have time, right? Write that book. Yeah. yeah. That business. (laughs) (laughs) So all of a sudden I found myself writing every week and um, wrote a book about perfectionists and perfectionist entrepreneurs. So I've coined this term perfectioner, which describes what I see as the millennial and Gen Z um, entrepreneurs who are like, I have to have it all. I have to work really hard and I have to hustle and I have to make all this money. And then they come to me in therapy and they have a quarter life crisis at 25. Or they're so burnt out, they are going into like an autoimmune inflammation situation. And wow. so they're like, my body is is declining and I'm in my 20s or 30s. And this is personal for me too. I mean, this is what I had to live through to go, oh, I've done this wrong. And this is ironic as a therapist. I can teach people self-care, but I wasn't doing it. <laughs> well, look at that. I shared my vulnerability as a, you know, I had a, as a licensed social worker and a, you know, a director in a program at that time. I, you know, we're human. We're human. So it's exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So the good news is this book is, you know, it it launched on June 1st and the response has been amazing. Like it almost makes me emotional because people are like, oh my gosh, I felt like I wrote this. I felt like your words were my words. I felt like I needed this book 10 years ago. I wanted this in grad school. I wanted this before I had horrible work-life balance. And so my hope is we're going to change the conversation. We're going to change from American culture of busyness to saying, let's have, you know, both, but let's do it well, because most of us are driving ourselves into the ground thinking this is the only way to succeed. And I'd like to change that dialogue. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. Kara, where can people find you? Oh gosh, everywhere. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best. Our website, which is the Crossweight Counseling website. Um, You can type in the word perfectioner, which is a, a new word, and you'll find me instantly. Just, I would love to connect with your listeners, see what they're thinking about all this. And then, of course, Cata Lively is our nonprofit doing the suicide prevention work. So if you guys feel inclined to support us, we would love to help more schools, especially now. So our work is not nearly done. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's not. And, you know, just leaving a piece for listeners, for those who have experienced some suicidal thoughts, um, or know a family member or something, um, leave us with a, a, a positive note of hope for, for these folks. I just want to reiterate again, asking about this does not give them the idea. Please, 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 if you're comfortable, ask them if they're suicidal. If you're not comfortable, that's okay too. Make sure you find them someone who can have this conversation. You don't have to hold it all. If you're at capacity, 
I know we're in a pandemic. <laughs> so <laughs> if you just can't, you don't have the bandwidth, just find someone who's willing to have this conversation because it will make all the difference for this person to feel heard, seen, and hopefully stay alive. Perfect. Thank you so much, Kara, for spending your time and being here and talking about something um, that not a lot of people like to talk about. And so in us having this conversation and just normalizing the conversation, I'm hoping that listeners can um, get something out of it and help someone. If you are feeling suicidal or you know someone who's feeling suicidal, uh, please contact whatever local supports, hospitals, there are crisis clinics, um, numbers that you can get. And I'll definitely be putting that in the show notes. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I hope this episode fed your soul. Please be sure to download new episodes. You can also head on over to rate review and subscribe for more updates. Find us at www.iambeauteousme.com or on Instagram at I am Don't forget to use the hashtag beauteousmepodcast podcast for your feedback.